Bega Valley Shire Library acknowledges and pays respect to the traditional custodians of the lands, waterways and airspace of the Shire in which we live, work and play, the Yuan and Monaro peoples. Hope, Loss, Resilience is a podcast series exploring how people stay hopeful, how they deal with loss and the resilience that binds the Bega Valley. It focuses on community experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, I'm Craig Garrett, a library officer with the Beaker Valley Shire Library. Earlier in 2023, I began interviewing people across the Beaker Valley in the far south coast of New South Wales about their experiences during the early years of the COVID-19 pandemic. And while we all know COVID-19 is global, the experiences of these last few years can't be separated from local stories. Each episode of Hope Lost Resilience explores a different theme, fire, health, education, family, community, business. In this episode, the first in a two-part focus on health, we hear from health workers, as well as people relying on our rural and regional health systems. But first, let's just set the scene. Here's award-winning Eden author Jessica Nelson-Tyers reflecting on her place and home. Footprints on the grass. I wish we could be a whisper so. We tread enchanted places without stain. I'm afraid that time will let them go. Wetlands crackle dry as ancient bones, fragile as the curved neck of a crane. I wish we could be a whisper so. The rain-fed creek would keep its flow. Whistlers sing wilder in their domain. I'm afraid that time will let them go. Kites sweep heaven with their show. Serpents and green dragons aren't all slain. I wish we could be a whisper though. A billion generations yet to grow. Twigs and branches cracking under strain. I'm afraid that time will let them go. Gold bell frogs ring as storm clouds blow. Celebrate the wash and rinse of rain. I wish we could be a whisper though. I'm afraid that time will let us go. In 2020, we began to hear news headlines like this. The World Health Organisation has declared the coronavirus a global pandemic. You shouldn't really be leaving home unless it's for work, for school, for essential things, or else if you need to seek medical attention. This says everybody should be preparing for person-to-person spread. COVID-19 unfolded, at first as a problem in faraway countries, but soon its impacts reverberated to our own continent, state and then shire. In the Bega Valley, even in the middle of a local bushfire crisis, some health workers and veterinarians were already tracking COVID-19 closely and asking what this could mean for their communities. My name is Vivian Harris and I live in Bega and I moved here just almost five years ago. Pandemics are something that my ex and I, my ex-husband, who's a GP, have been fascinated in for 30 years. That's my master's is in veterinary pathology. And I've done epidemiology in several of my courses, university courses. So yes, I've been hyper aware of it all the way through. On the 25th of January, when it had just started in Wuhan, 
I saw a tweet from an epidemiologist basically swearing in surprise at the RO value for COVID and the death rate and pointing out that this could be really serious because even a 1% death rate with that amount of transmissibility, you know, he pointing out that if that went around the world, the death rate would be huge. My first thought was I knew that SARS, they'd never managed to make a vaccine for, and I knew that with a 1% death rate, then a lot of people I knew who were vulnerable would die. And I actually had to stop myself grieving for their deaths before that even occurred because I just knew what a 1% death rate was going to do. So watching it come to Australia, watching us being slow to react, it was, it was hard. It was hard. And um, when we got the vaccines, I was just so overwhelmed with relief at the thought that, you know, I may not lose family members and friends. I'm Linda. I'm a specialist respiratory nurse. That I work across the coastal network, which covers an area from Batemans Bay to Eden. It's mainly about supporting people in the community that have got chronic lung disease. So we had a lot of acute presentations with people with respiratory illness because of the fires. Got through the bushfires and then had COVID straight after that. With no real precedent, we had to do it on the hop, is setting up COVID testing clinics, working out what we needed to do as far as wearing our personal protective equipment for all our work we did in the hospital, work we did in the clinic. There was no guidelines to start with about how we needed to do things in a rural area. So each rural area was working it out on the hop. So support networks came into place very quickly around the state as we got guidelines and evidence coming in on how we should be managing this new situation. So I was quite heavily involved to start with in the testing clinics. We had drive-through testing clinics out the front of the hospital. So we're out there sort of all day in all weather initially with cars lined up, banked up all around the car park on some days, people waiting to get tested. We started up virtual care, monitoring people that are in the hospital. Further down the track, we set up immunization clinics. So it was all, it was all new and the job took on a whole new direction. My name is Amelia Withers. I'm the Coastal Network Chief Pharmacist, which means I look after Bega Hospital, Pambula, Maruya and Batemans Bay. So I can recall in March of 2020, the previous Chief Pharmacist left and I took over the role. I think professionally it was when it first came to Australia that I learnt about it and very quickly we learnt that it potentially is going to affect us in the Bega Valley and affect us in the rural communities. And we started out with workforce planning. So how are we going to increase our services if this is going to come into our hospitals? There was talk about Bega being a strategic point because of our location. We're a long way from other tertiary hospitals like Canberra. We started to ramp it up very quickly. In early 2020, community support services were rallying to help communities in the wake of a bushfire crisis and then suddenly had to pivot. 
My name is Carly McDonald. I'm the Community Engagement Officer here at Headspace Bega. Headspace Bega is a youth mental health service. We provide a free service to young people 12 to 25 and friends and family. We provide a whole range of services from work and study support, peer support, clinical support, dietitian. Yeah, so it's really just kind of like a no wrong door policy for young people to come on in and access help. COVID, it was a really difficult time because a lot of, you know, the whole team was impacted to varying degrees. We did receive some funding for a community engagement bushfire recovery role because based on the research, we knew how valuable it was to have someone out in community listening to community and then having community-led projects and initiatives with the support of Headspace and that's how that role was created. The funding that we got also enabled us to take on another clinician as well. My role as community engagement, it was getting out into community and bringing community together, which which was great in theory and would have been great. And then the pandemic hit and was like, no, 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 social distancing. And so that really put a spanner in the works of a lot of like events that we were doing and that we were helping out with that, yeah, were about to happen and, you know, all of these things. And then the pandemic hit and then we kind of had to pivot and actually cancel or postpone these events and projects without the benefit of delivering something and getting those positive outcomes. I'm Jane. I'm the manager at the Bega Women's Resource Centre. My initial concern as well was that we were still in the middle of fires and that people were in evacuation centres and how was that going to work in an environment where we needed people to isolate and be safe from disease when people were kind of jammed together in these small spaces. So that was a consideration like, you know, is our government equipped and prepared to be able to handle this and are people going to become unwell because we don't have the facilities that are needed? The other concern living again in a really small rural community is were our own health services able to cope with any demand on our systems? We have a lovely big hospital, but I don't know that it's completely fully staffed and as operational as we would like. I don't know, it can be hard to recruit medical professionals to rural areas. So that was a big concern was, you know, if we were experiencing the types of numbers that we saw on the television for places like Italy and um New York, um, those scary numbers, those scary visions of people stacked in the streets because there wasn't enough room in their morgues, like that was horrifying. And the idea that if we had infection numbers of that rate, the Bega Valley I don't think would have coped with that at all. And in any type of crisis, it's those who are most vulnerable who are most likely to be impacted. Given that that's the work I do, that's always my first worry, I guess. What we also saw was a number of women with really significant mental health concerns who suddenly didn't have access to support. So even though a lot of the time their support services were still providing phone supports, for some women who have really significant mental health concerns, they weren't trusting what was on the other end of the phone. They Because they weren't having physical contact and couldn't see what was happening, a lot of the time they their health really deteriorated quite significantly. So I did have one woman who came in to me one day 
poor bugger, she told me that she thought she was the typhoid Mary of COVID because everybody around her was getting sick, but she wasn't getting sick. So all of the messaging on the television and everything like that was about, you know, this terrible, overwhelming disease and everyone was getting sick. She lived alone. She didn't have her regular supports coming to visit her because they couldn't. She doesn't have any family in the area. So her world becomes microcosm of COVID and she couldn't understand why she wasn't sick too. So she, you know, she figured that she must be the typhoid Mary, the carrier who never actually got sick. And that was really awful. Like she became really quite significantly unwell and she ended up actually having to go to a residential facility. She wasn't able to live alone for a period of time. So I think, yeah, there were unexpected consequences of those lockdowns on the back of, you know, a really extended period of trauma for our community that weren't seen and perhaps still haven't been recognised. So, yeah, it was um, a very, very troubling time here. So my name is Adam Woolacott. I'm a physiotherapist with Sapphire Coast Physio. We're a rural physio clinic, so we see pretty much everything. The health services down here can struggle a little bit. The GPs are quite overwhelmed at times. And so we see a lot of non-physio related things as well, often as the first person coming in, and then we often need to then get them into the right therapy mode. My wife is a vet. And vets, they're very highly trained with biosecurity. And she's always had an interest in previous pandemics, the history of it. And I guess I have as well from a health point of view. Pragmatically, we always assumed at some point in our lives we would face a pandemic. You know, there'd been just that sort of period of time. And it was in early January and she was easily the first person I know of that brought it up. And she said to me, this is serious, Adam. You need to take a look at it. I was very dismissive at the time. We'd just done fires and I thought, you know, no, no, it's fine. You know, about two weeks later, she said, no, no, it's serious. You need to pay attention to this. And she arrived home from a, her usual shop with extra toilet paper, Glen 20, hand sanitizer. And we're talking mid-January. And I'm thinking, really? This is something we're going to take note of? And she's like, yeah, this is it. This is the big one. Behind the scenes, health workers were faced with huge logistical challenges. Because Bega is a larger hospital for within Southern New South Wales Health District, we were a strategic point because we are a larger hospital that has an ICU, but we're a long way from Canberra. So there was a lot of upskilling, a lot of planning from a pharmacy perspective. How are we going to make sure that we are able to supply all the drugs? It was a huge logistical matter to organise. So even like if we needed to intubate patients, we were doing that at full capacity. Where were we going to store the drugs that need to be in the safe? Before we started even thinking about the individual care from the logistics perspective, how are we going to actually have enough space to store what we needed was the first things we were looking at. So we didn't, we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how sick patients were going to be, but we needed to be ready for the patients to be sick. And we were always going to plan for worst case scenario. My experience in emergency planning had been the bushfires, which was very different. This is a health event and the planning was very different. Also, it was a very rapid event that it evolved rapidly. For example, with the COVID vaccinations, 
we were waiting for them. And then when they came out, it was we, we needed to get them on the ground as soon as possible. So it was a very different event to any emergency planning that I had done before. I actually started writing a diary the day before Australia declared a pandemic. And so now I'm up to day 1,134. I think people's diaries of living through this time are going to be really important to historians in the future. Now, you know, most of my diary is boring, okay? It's woke up, walked the dogs, went to work. It's really boring. But, <laughs> but you know, we need to know things like that. Historians will need to know what it was like living through it. One of the things that we did, oh, I stocked up very early on and so I cruised through the toilet paper crisis. The other thing, when we went into lockdown, my daughter and granddaughter moved in with me and my other daughter so that we were a group of four rather than separated because we knew we weren't going to be able to visit. So we figured it was better to live together. One of the things that we did do was we actually had a routine very early on where we where we held a bit of silence for the dead each day. You know, remember at 11 o'clock and then you used to get the official news item on the COVID situation. So we used to all sit down with something sweet and a cup of coffee and we'd sit outside and we'd listen to how many people had died and just, you know, commemorate their deaths. And here we are now, you know. I remember when we went over 10 and feeling just, oh, my goodness, 10 people dead and now how quickly we we forget and we normalise mass death. It's just horrible. So I think in the early days we were having the information coming through from Europe in the first instance about the huge impact on the hospitals and I guess that was where our concern was that Australia would suffer the same sorts of experiences that we were hearing coming from, I think, particularly Italy to start with, where the hospitals were overflowing and they were having to prioritise care. And as a healthcare professional, that was the concern is, you know, what are we going to be end up dealing with here? Fortunately, all the preparation that we did for that sort of experience didn't come to fruition. Perhaps the general population don't have a good understanding of just how successful we were because we were prepping up for this hospital to be, you know, theatres closed and full of ventilated patients, medical ward full of very severely unwell people, ICUs overflowing, having to prioritise care and not being able to give everyone the same level of care. Now that happened all around the world, but not in Australia. So our lockdowns and our policies of keeping things locked down until we got immunisation rates up were very successful. But in the early days, we were very worried. COVID-19 not only affected health workers professionally, but in their personal lives too. Former GP Janice, who travelled from Eden to Melbourne in the aftermath of the fires, describes what it was like trying to support her severely ill fiancé in the health system during the pandemic. My name's Janice Nelson. My husband of 36 years and I moved from Victoria to Eden in late 1988. We were 
general practitioners and we started a new clinic in Eden. My husband died in a skiing accident 12 years ago, which was devastating. Just over four years ago, I retired from work and at the same time became engaged to marry an old friend, an ex-Eden man. So we still wanted to live together. We had to decide where to live as, as my home and all my connections and some of my family anyway were here and my fiancé had his home and some of his family in Victoria. So what we decided to do was live alternating between Frankston and Eden, two months here and two months there. I haven't had COVID. I've had five vaccines. Most people I know have had COVID. Some were mildly affected, some moderately and a few severely affected. I, I've got quite a lot to say about what happened in Melbourne. 18 months after our wedding, it became apparent that my new husband was seriously unwell. He, was, he became confused and he couldn't find any words, which was so unlike him. I took him to accident emergency at the nearby Frankston Hospital. We were met there by security at the door and I was told I could not enter the hospital with him. And my husband couldn't give a history himself, so that was really unsatisfactory. I, I, I asked if I could just go in very briefly to explain the situation to the triage nurse and I was able to do that fortunately. And then he waited for hours and hours before being finally seen and having a CT scan of the brain which showed a large brain tumour and further tests showed extensive metastatic disease. And it was a couple of days in before a bed was available at the Alfred Hospital for, and then another two-week delay before he was able to have surgery for the brain tumour. He was on high-dose steroids for all that time, which caused diabetes and muscle weakness and also delayed any definitive treatment. And the hospital system was obviously under enormous stretch at the time due to the COVID emissions. As far as visiting went, inpatients at the Alfred were only allowed three registered visitors each, and each visitor was only allowed to visit by appointment for one hour per day. And this was uh, uh, and only one visitor per day which is really difficult as we knew that my husband's life expectancy was very limited. At the same time, the hospital's concern about COVID was very warranted. One family member down there came down with COVID and then another and I was exposed, so I couldn't visit at all for a week at this really critical time while Chris was awaiting his surgery. Fortunately, I'd had four COVID shots by then, so I didn't come down with COVID. After discharge... My husband was referred to radio, for radiotherapy and oncology. This would have normally happened at the Frankston Private Hospital, two kilometres away from our home down there, but the hospital had been taken over by the public system, so oncology wasn't available. So as a result, we had to travel to another oncology unit, 70 kilometre round trip. He reacted very seriously to his first immunotherapy treatment, and I called an ambulance. The system was overwhelmed, of course, at that time, and there was a delay of over an hour before the ambulance arrived, and he was then re-hospitalised at the Mulgrave Hospital north of Dandenong. Altogether, he spent um, two-thirds of that last three months of his life in hospital and two stints in intensive care. 
and visiting each day resulted in a lot of travelling which wouldn't otherwise have occurred. As soon as the, those really strict COVID restrictions on visitors were relaxed, the hospital began having outbreaks of COVID. And I was thankful that my husband had also had his COVID shots as he remained COVID-free despite being so ill. And he finally died in July last year, so just short of a year ago. And this was just at the peak of COVID deaths, which were about 700 per week at that point across Australia. And mortuary services were very stretched and we had to delay the funeral as a result. Well, I just found that whole experience terribly traumatic. As far as dealing with it, um, I've been doing a lot of reading um, just to try to distract myself. Um, work on the property, um, gardening, etc. And appreciating having the family that I've still got. I don't think anywhere could have been prepared because there was no precedent. And to start with, we didn't even know exactly what we were dealing with with COVID. So it was a matter of working things out as we went. But people just stepped up and we all had to change our roles and step up and do what was required at the time. So statewide, things did spring into action fairly quickly. We had a statewide respiratory network that we met virtually to discuss the evolving situation very regularly to start with so that we were all kept up to date with the latest guidelines and latest research. There was an amazing amount of support really. You know, we were learning as we as we went. It was a difficult time, but as healthcare professionals you just do what you need to do at the time. You've been listening to part one of Health, the second episode in Hope Lost Resilience, a Beaker Valley Shire Library production. You can find all our other episodes wherever you find your podcasts. A huge thanks to all those people's stories you heard. Vivian Harris, Linda G, Amelia Withers, Carly McDonald, Jane Hughes, Adam Bullocott and Janice Nelson. These interviews are part of the Beaker Valley Shire Library's Oral Histories Project, Talking Together. You can hear or read the full interviews and transcripts and more in the Beaker Valley Shire Library's catalogue. Go to library.beagervalley.newsouthwales.gov.au or if you're in the Beaker Valley, just pop into the library and ask a librarian. If this episode has brought up anything for you, you can reach Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're in the Beaker Valley and would like to connect with mental health services, you can call free 1800 011 511 24 hours, 7 days. You can find full links to resources in our show notes. The music you heard was Rocks and Snow by David Ross MacDonald and you can find his work at davidrossmcdonald.bandcamp.com. The poem was Footprints in the Grass by Jessica Nelson Tyers and the music Fairy Tale by Livio Amato. We'd also like to thank the Candelo Radio Roadshow Hour, Community Radio 93.7 Edge FM, Headspace Bega and Southern New South Wales Local Health. An additional thanks goes to our wonderful, brilliant transcribers, Joe Osler, Alexander Masika, Trish Dive, Janet Reynolds, 
Project Lead and Management thanks to Linda Albertson, Skeeter Val, Rachel Higginbotham and Sarah Morrison. Extra organisational help for all those bibs and bobs that always pop up. Anita Coakley, Carly MacDonald and Emma Woolley and Vanessa Barrett. Website design, Natalie Martin-Remmett and script editing and podcast production, Shona Hawks. Principal production, including audio and sound design, by Craig Garrett. This program is part of the Bega Valley Shire Library's Talking Together Oral Histories Project, funded under the Joint Australian Government, New South Wales Government Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements 2018 through the New South Wales Reconstruction Authority. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of the New South Wales Government.